episode 233 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today we're catching up with Jess Montgomery to talk about The Echoes, which is the fourth installment in her kinship series of mysteries featuring Sheriff Lily Ross. And congratulations, because your pub day was yesterday. So happy book birthday. Thank you so much. (laughs) So we're going to talk about some of the other things you do, like your podcast, Tea with Jess. Uh, Congratulations on that. I'm a big believer in podcasts, and I don't think there could be too many of them. But let's talk about the book. It's 1928, and the story of the Echoes opens just before the 4th of July, although not with Lily, but let's hold that thought and skip ahead just a bit to the opening of an amusement park that Lily Ross, her family, and the whole region surrounding kinship is looking forward to. I read in the acknowledgments that this amusement park, which sounds quite similar to amusement parks of today, was based on something you happened upon during a hike. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, Yeah, so um, amusement parks today do have some of the features of amusement parks 100 years ago. (laughs) But I think when we think about amusement parks, we think roller coasters, um, we think, you know, bump-em cars of thing um and this particular amusement park it, you know is much more comprised of gentle amusements if you will <laughs> with the exception <laughs> you know, of the shooting gallery yeah which is an interesting choice to have in an amusement park um that is built to uh commemorate and honor veterans <laughs> I think. Um, But yeah, it's inspired by the Argonne Forest Park, which was built um, where near where I live, which is in south uh, western Ohio. Um, And it was it was built after the Great War ended uh, by this fellow named uh, Rui Hodap, who uh, I believe I'm getting his name right, who fought in the Great War and um, no, it was Nal Hodap. His his nephew, who I interviewed, was Rui. Anyway, so he fought in the Great War. He was in the uh, Argonne, um, the Meuse Argonne Offensive, which is one of the largest, definitely the most bloody um, military um, offensives the United States has ever been involved in. It's it was like over a million men. A quarter of them either were killed or injured. Um, And I'm sure the other three fourths were traumatized in some form or fashion. So uh, it was it was just a a bloody battle. And on November 11th, um, it was declared, oh, we're going to let's have a ceasefire. We're going to, uh, you know, the war is going to end at something like noon local, you know, like our time, Eastern time. 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th 11th? month. Yes. Okay. Exactly. So, yeah, this was what was declared warning and this is what's going to happen. Everybody put down their guns, but what actually happened uh, to this poor fellow and and to his friend Ralph was that there was a a German shooter still firing away and killed his friend at 10 a.m on that day one hour before is just you know tragic that all these people died at all but but the bitterness of one hour away from peace 
Um, so he came back to the Dayton area and he eventually carved out this amusement park and um, that fell into disarray and sort of dwindled away um, with World War II because of gas rationing. So people couldn't drive out, you know, to the park. Um, but we came across it as we were hiking in one of our many wonderful metro parks in the area, a park called Possum Creek. And we're walking along and I'm like, wait a minute, what's that? What's that on the, in the ground? That's not a rock. Well, it was the remnants of an old dance floor. And then we came up on a sign that said, well, in this area used to be the Argonne Forest Park. And I was just so intrigued. And I didn't know any of what I just said um, when I saw this piece of dance floor poking out of the ground. <laughs> um, so I was very intrigued by this sign and by, you know, then we saw, hey, wait, what's that over there? Oh, that's like the remnants of an old uh, streetcar. It turns out those had been lined up and used as lodging. Oh, there's the foundation of an old swimming pool, you know. So I did some uh, reading a lot of archived uh, articles from back in the day, found this gentleman's even then in 1998, fairly elderly nephew, who was a little kid, you know, uh, when he would go to this park in the 1920s, and wrote an article about it and kind of set it aside in my head. You know, I thought, oh, I've written about it, I'm done. But then when I started planning this book, that came back to me. And I thought, oh, I don't think I'm done with that park and what it represents. So I, um, I moved the park <laughs> across <laughs> the state <laughs> to kinship, um, you know, assuming that would be okay. And also assuming there were probably other parks like this dotted around the country and uh, came up with, you know, my version, which drew on the same elements, including the shooting range. It is, it, it is amazing. Uh, when I talk to writers, how, these things, especially former journalists, stories that you, not, I know that you are currently a journalist as well, but journalists, we write about these things. And like you said, it comes into our heads, out of our fingers and sort of that's, you know, that that's kind of the end of the cycle, but how the residual memory of these stories come back to us when we're sitting down and creating fiction. Of course, it's wonderful in fiction. You can move the park a few hundred miles to sure. your town. And, uh, but the elements are there. And I think that that's such an important part of how you weave together a story and how writers weave together stories, especially you. Your, your stories are so evocative of so many things. And, that brings me to my next question, which is how the, the past can never be escaped, uh, which is, you know, as sort of one of the foundational elements of crime fiction and mysteries. But there are reminders that are both ephemeral, like memories and solid living, breathing offspring turn up at the most unexpected time. And one of those reminders, the daughter of Lily's late brother, who he fathered while fighting in France is making her way to kinship unbeknownst to anybody except Lily's mother, Beulah. Mm -hmm. um, and her, which is of course, one of the secrets. 
uh, her journey across the Atlantic and halfway across the continent is harrowing. And that's before she's kidnapped. So, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Poor kid. I put her through the ringer, didn't I? Yeah, I, I realized um, as I, you know, was at the very beginning stages of, oh, I'm going to write a fourth book in the series. And the previous one had been set in the winter of 1927. So I'd written a lot about what it's like in, you know, the winter in the hills and hollers of Appalachia and the cold wind and how difficult it is to travel. And I thought, okay, now we need to, in 1928, you know, be smack dab in the middle of summer. Um, it'll be easier for me to write and easier for my characters to get around. Um, although, you know, this although not always. Own, yeah, it comes with its own, you know, <laughs> challenges, right? Every season does. Um, and I thought, oh, what's more, you know, Americana than July 4th. And so that led to thinking about this park that led to thinking about, hey, wait a minute, Lily has an older brother, slightly older brother who's referred to you know, in loving terms and all, but all we really know about him for the first three books is that he, he was engaged to Lily's friend, Hildy. He went off to fight in this war. He died in the war. And that's what we know. And I thought, hmm, I'd like to know a lot more about him. So I just started brainstorming, like, well, what was, what were his experiences? What did he do? How did, you know, what happened to him? And um, I came up with the idea for, for whatever reason of, yeah, he fathered a child and what is more of an echo of ourselves than a child, right? Um, and he is a good character. He, you know, he wasn't just willy nilly gallivanting around France um, and, you know, hanging out with French ladies. <laughs> he, he felt love for the woman who was the mother of his child. And there are all kinds of reasons why she has to come to the U.S., which I don't want to get into because that part is a bit of a spoiler. Spoiler um, alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. Um, so, you know, she's she's working her way to kinship to meet this family, these family members that she only knows vaguely about. Um, so what courage and what faith for this, this kid to do this? Um, yeah, it was interesting to play with. And it's a challenging journey. We won't go much further than that. But yes. she does She does cross the Atlantic and she makes her way from New York City to Ohio. And the entire trip is fraught. And I thought just so, I mean, I could feel it. It was visceral. So kudos on that because you had to put yourself in the mind of a kid who doesn't speak the language of everybody. Surround, although she does know a little bit of English. Um, and it was, I thought, I thought that that was just so that was, that really stuck with me more than anything in the book, I think. Oh, and I think other, other people who read it will feel the same. Okay, great. Well, I minored in French in uh, college, which is a while ago. And I try to relearn and keep up with, uh, what little I remember of French every now and then. <laughs> so this, this provided a welcome like reason to kind of revisit uh, the, the French language and to research what it would be like to have crossed uh, across the ocean. Not, and to make sure I didn't just pull from movie images, but really, you know, made it real. So, so we, we touched on this in the previous question, but secrets are the stuff 
that propel mystery fiction. And there are so many secrets in this story that, you know, we don't need to even say any of them. Um, <laughs> but one thing I noticed, uh, it really ends well for those who will do anything to keep their secrets from seeing the light of day. And yet secrets don't want to stay hidden. So many of the secrets in the echoes center around children born out of wedlock. Um, <clears throat> Esme, the, the French girl, is not the only one. And I think we need to talk about that because children have been conceived and born out of wedlock for as long as there have been people. Right. So, um, but it was particularly scandalous, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a lot of shame, you know, even in our lifetimes and probably for some folks still, if a child is born out of wedlock and that becomes a secret to hide and it can be something that's held over people's heads and it affects how the kids are treated, even though they had no say in the matter, you know, they just, <laughs> they're the innocents, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I did want to explore that and, and look at how even in a time where there would be much more uh, shame and strictures around, you know, the lineage of a child, um, how, you know, humans can open their hearts up to be accepting of humans of all kinds, however they are and however they ended up on this earth. And to a very Grace great compassion are important. It's the women who open their hearts. Yes. Even women who think the child might be the offspring of a philandering husband. It's, it, it, you know, I, I can't, I don't know if it's nurture or nature, but, but the women in this story are so much more open to and forgiving of each other. And, mm -hmm. and that's, I think one of the, one of the strengths is, is your women characters are unusual and not caricatures. I mean, they are, Lily is as real to me as you are. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, but the idea of secrets and this idea of, of children born out of wedlock and gossip, it sort of, I started to think about it um, actually after I wrote the questions and I, I included this question this morning. It sort of brings to mind social media and, you know, cancel culture, I'm doing air quotes, mm -hmm. and how there's nothing new about that except the technology and terminology. Uh, the residents of kinship had plenty of gossip and their own version of cancel culture. I'm thinking of the family who a couple of generations back, there was a, uh, a deal that, that benefited one branch and not the other. Right. Um, and how this could turn toxic. And so this is sort of cancel culture, uh, Alan, 1928. I mean, d does that ever <laughs> enter your head as you, oh, as you write this? Um, so I, I, I grew up in uh, my parents and their parents and their parents going on back. Uh, everybody in my family were from Appalachia and family was everything. And to me, family is everything. But the twist on that was family is everything until it's not. <laughs> and, you know, feuds happen. Um, you know, the Hatfields and McCoys is the kind of stereotypical example we all pull out. But that's what I mean about, you know, family is everything until it's 
not uh, for some families. And forgiveness can be in short supply and grace can be in short supply. So I kind of wanted to show that aspect as well, because you're right, the, Lily and her mother and uh, her best friend um, and those characters are very open and loving and forgiving. And I certainly had plenty of relatives on my father's side who were that way. Um, but I had a few relatives on my mother's side who weren't. So it was interesting to kind of pull in that emotionality. Um, I didn't make the connection that it's, you know, cancel culture, but not called that a hundred years ago. Um, but you're right. That is kind of, you know, humans are always humans, no matter, no matter what year it is there, there was probably cancel culture in 1000 BC, you know, I'm sure there was of some sort, right? Well, I so. think um, uh, Jesus Christ might've thought there was cancel culture. Yes. He, he did speak about this in <laughs> so many words once or twice. <laughs> And, you know, honestly, the whole uh, notion of love your neighbor as yourself, um, that's really, really hard. I always think, yeah, I'll just work on that for a lifetime and then and, and fail at it, but, but work <laughs> at it, but work at it. And that's it's the work. Comes it's in. the work. It's, it's the, you know, I'm really making an honest attempt to get this, uh, but it's so hard because we are human and we're frail and, you know. Um, and then I always think if, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll nail that and then I'll worry about the rest of this stuff. <laughs> On the other hand, feuds, feuds make for some wonderful plot points. Uh, they do. As they do in your book as well, because that's, that's, a, you know, there are some doozies. That's all I can say. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. But, you know, um, the other thing that I think your book uh, touched on more than previous, uh, this is the fourth installment. So more than the previous three, because uh, from the from the beginning of the first book, uh, Lily is a widow. Uh -huh. One thing I noticed in this book was there were a lot of, of dysfunctional marriages. And uh -huh. you've featured problematic couples before. Uh, I'm thinking of the bootlegger and, and uh -huh. <laughs> uh, Lily's uh, frenemy. Yeah. But the Echoes takes marital uh, enmity to sort of a new level in Lily's world. In this in this book, there, there's the you know there's just uh, is it Hiram and and Sophia? Mm -hmm. I mean that's just a marriage made in hell. Uh, so Hiram, it's actually Chalmer and Sophia, and oh, yes, sorry. it is. That's okay. Uh, Hiram is Chalmer's distant cousin. Um, yeah, Chalmer and Sophia, oh dear, that is a marriage made in hell. Um, but it was interesting to try to play with that and build that up um, as a sort of a juxtaposition to Lily and her mother Beulah, who are both widowed, but who were happily married and have very fond memories of their husbands. And, you know, that's one reason they've had a bit of a hard time, each of them, um, you know, recognizing it's been several years, time to decide if you want to be open to love again or not. Um, and so, yeah, I felt like, yeah, it was time to kind of show that contrast. Um, yeah, they're not a fun couple. You're right. <laughs> but they're entertaining though. 
Very, very. But what one of the things is the, this sort of these sort of dysfunctional marriages was a, like another caution flag for Lily in her relationship with Benjamin. Yes. Um, you know, husbands and wives fight, and you know, sometimes physically, although that's that's not okay. No. But divorce really isn't a thing um, if you make a mistake. And especially for Lily, who has a job that requires uh, being elected, uh, mm-hmm. it might be a, ra- a ra- rationalization, but, you know, it's something that, that Lily considers, I think, as she's contemplating Benjamin in a life of, of, there are other things she contemplates, but that seemed to come through to me that it was like, wait a minute, what if we don't get along? Yeah, what if we don't get along? And, you know, he uh, he admires her and loves her, but isn't a hundred percent like yeah go you because i didn't think that would be realistic you know it i it would be a very unusual man in the 1920s who who wouldn't have at least some reservations about wait my wife is a sheriff and loves being a sheriff and is good at being a sheriff and wants to keep being a sheriff um uh, yeah, that's just not how relationship dynamics would have worked. And for her, uh, she has in in many ways a lot more to lose than he does because this is the job that you know she has and has had. And you're exactly right. If she chucks it all aside uh, and marries him, and she's miserable, or he turns out not to be such a great stepfather, you know, then what? There are all these things to consider. It's not like she could say, you know well, that was a mistake. It's been a couple of years. Let's get a divorce. I'm going to go get a job at the bank or whatever. Um, so, you know, women still have uh, strictures and, and so do men um, based on their, how they gender identify that, that are problematic. But in the 1920s, it was even, you know, it was obviously much more strict. So it was interesting to kind of um, look at those nuances of, you know, she's a, human who loves her job but she's also a human who who wants to be loved and loved so how do you balance those (laughs) well i often wonder when i when i read these books i wonder about lily and all the plates that she has spinning as a mother a sheriff someone in a relationship a daughter um you know it's it you know i know beulah uh contemplates uh courting again in this book Mm -hmm say anymore but it's a much easier contemplation for lily's mother than it is for lily it is it is um and yet you know there's a lot on the line there too because you know that's going to that's always going to shake up the family dynamic no matter what year it is but particularly you know back then and beulah by the way lily's mother is only 48 so by our standards quite a young woman but in 1928 you know um not as young (laughs) 48 in 1928 isn't as young as 48 in 2022 and you know she's a woman of her era just like we all are to to some degree and so she has much more old-fashioned notions compared to lily um about what it means to be a woman and the, the the role to fulfill so um it was fun juxtaposing the two um, and and having them each kind of grow to understand and appreciate the other 
more than they already did. I mean, you know, at the beginning of the book, they already, you know, they love each other, they respect each other, but they squabble and they don't quite, they don't see eye to eye and they have very different worldviews. By the end of the book, they understand each other more. Um, and so it was fun to, to have that evolve. And, you know, Lily's mother, Beulah, has been in the background of each of the books, helping and making sure that, you know, Lily can actually leave in the middle of the night and her children are still safe. And I actually based that idea on a great aunt of mine, great aunt Josie, who um, never married, but ended up living with my aunt Opal, who, you know, worked, had a career her whole life, but her husband also worked um, and they had two kids. So how was she, how were they so they were kind of, you know, innovative thinkers for their day. But, you know, they had that problem of how are we going to balance, you know, we're both working jobs that we love. Um, and we have these two kids. And what are we going to do? And great aunt Josie kind of stepped in and made it possible for them to have that juggle. Now, they also made it possible for great aunt Josie to be well taken care of. So good trade. Um, but I thought, yeah, you know, Lily's going to need somebody to help her out. So, well, it's, it's, you know, as you pointed out, they, there is a generational difference between, uh, Lily and her mother, even though in, in ages, they're not, you know, there, it sounds like Lily, sounds like Beulah was in her teens. Yeah, so Lily, Lily's 30, turns 30 in this book, and Beulah's 48. So they're not that much apart by our standards. And Lily's brother is like a year and a half older. So Beulah would have been like 16 and a half, 17 when she had her son. And that's not uncommon (laughs) back then at all. And she has what, you know, in my family and other people would call change of life baby. So she also has a... um, she also has a seven-year-old son who's the same age as Lily's son. Uh, actually, a few months younger, which I did on purpose because Beulah's son, Lily's little brother, insists that he be called uncle by his cousins who are older than him. <laughs> so, um, or by his niece and nephew who are slightly older than him. Um, yeah, so Lily's mother would have been born in what, 1880? So she would have had come of age, you know, in the mid, uh, early to mid 1890s. So she would have had very different views um, than we do or than, than Lily would have coming of age in the 1910s. Right, because that was such a dynamic uh, decade between 1910 and 1920. Yeah. You know, not just the war, but the expansion of, of- transportation don't get me started don't get oh me started. yeah ab, ab, but but that's you know but absolutely so it in year wise it doesn't seem a whole lot until you think about you know how the turn of that century shook things up in a, in a big way so so as in previous installments in this series uh ptsd and the lingering aftermath of the great war permeates the story mm-hmm. and the impact of the war on the mental health of its participants is staggering in its breadth and repercussions to, I think we're just, maybe we always knew, but it's coming to light. Uh, and you touch on this in your acknowledgements as well, uh, how significant it is for all of us. 
and especially the yeah. characters in your book. It, it's yeah. a driving force. Yeah. I mean, it shapes several of the characters um, and who they are and, you know, and during that era, it would have been called shell shock, of course, not, not PTSD, but it's the same thing just because the name of the disease or the condition, I shouldn't say disease, the name of the condition is changed doesn't mean the condition is, has changed. Um, and I, I'm passionate that I, about many things, but that I think veterans should, should have the care that they need to deal with the traumas of, of having been in battle. Um, you know, my father was uh, a World War II vet. He was a Browning automatic rifle man, a BAR man. And so for any World War II buffs out there, they'll hear that and go, oh my, he survived to become your father. How about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, that's, that was a tough, uh, tough fight. He fought his way, you know, with his unit through France and um, his, his assistant gunner was killed, you know, killed right next to him by a sniper. So I, that's one reason I, I, um, plus the story from, from the, the gentleman in our area who developed the, uh, amusement park. So I, I kind of wanted to draw on that a bit and I was born late in life to my parents. So, you know, it would have been like the mid to late seventies when I was a, not a little, little girl, but you know, a, a little girl. Um, and I would hear my father scream out, I think at night, I'm like, what's going on with that? And it, I, it wasn't until I was in my thirties that he told me that he was dreaming about having fought in that war and those experiences would come back to him at night. So he, you know, and, but, but it was another like 10, 15 years before he said, wait a minute, maybe that's PTSD. I, I'm hearing about that now. Do I have PTSD? Yes, dad, you have PTSD. But I was touched by that. And, um, and then I started thinking about other forms of PTSD. It's, it's not only folks in the military, people can have uh, childhood trauma or adult trauma that, that creates a form of PTSD. And, um, you know, people with PTSD carry that around and it's not visible. So, you know, the old saying, you never know what, what people are going through. That's, that's really true. So I want to never know what people are going out. through. Yeah. You never know. And um, it was interesting to explore that and, and try to balance both showing some characters being compassionate but also the realistic reaction that many people would have had and still have of, you know, that's in the past, just get over it, get move over on. it, get over it, toughen up, move on. Um, but yet things in the past, we never let, we never lose the things in the past. They come with us <laughs> all the, the way through our lives. They echo through our lives. Yeah. And, you know, our only, we don't have a choice about if they come with us through our lives, what we have a choice is how, or if we deal with them. Um, so I wanted to explore that. George Sanders said in a lecture that fiction is the training wheels of empathy. I'm paraphrasing. Oh, that's a great line. And it is, well, it's George Sanders. So of course. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we expect? <laughs> but I, you know, uh, the writer David Joy quoted that to me and I went and I looked it up and I read the, pretty much the, the whole of the lecture that George Sanders had given. And, you know, it's absolutely true that um, 
that we can experience these feelings and these reactions through a story. So it's not being, it's not, you know, a lecture of you must do this and this is good right. and this is bad. It's, it's, you know, you can see it in a contextual way. And I think that's, that's one thing that fiction and good fiction like yours does. It tells a story and, and, and yet we learn something too about humankind and maybe about ourselves. Yeah. Thank you. That's so I good. also, you know, you, you, you're doing this series, uh, your four books in, I'm going to ask you what, what comes next. But before I do that, I want to ask you because you are now a podcaster and you have a podcast <laughs> called Tea with Jess, which I would encourage any listeners of this podcast to download. Um, so you also touched on this in your acknowledgments. What made you want to be a podcaster? Uh, it snuck up on me like many decisions uh, in my career. You were ambushed. I was, yes, well, I was snuck up on and, and then, yes, uh, and then jumped upon by this notion. So when the pandemic was getting underway, um, my publisher, Minotaur Books, um, contacted, you know, a wide range of authors and said, here's some thought. They didn't say podcast. They said, here's some ways you might want to engage with, um, with your readers. Now that we're all, you know, have you thought about, you could think about doing Facebook live uh, talks. You could do this, you could do that. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll, you know, I'll give the Facebook live um, a whirl. And so my first few were, you know, I thought, oh, okay life is hard, have tea. That's a line <laughs> from that's in every book that's uh, 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 given by um, a secondary character named Nana. And I thought, well, life is definitely hard right now. Let's have tea. So it was just me for at first. And then I thought, I only have so much to say once a week about, especially in a pandemic, like here we are <laughs> still here. Uh, so I thought, Let's have a friend on. We'll have tea together and people can join in if they want. And then one of my friends said, you know, you're recording these. Have you thought about also making them a podcast? And I thought, well, why not? Let's give that a try. So it, it evolved from in, in that way. And it's been fun. Uh, it's been interesting. So, and it's well, a I way of kind of giving, you know, lifting other writers, as you know, uh, as you do in your podcast um, to maybe reach, you know, a few readers they might not otherwise. I know it's, it's, uh, first of all, it, for me, it's, it's a privilege and an honor to talk to writers who produce such wonderful work and varied and different. And, um, it, but if, if one person can be introduced to any of the books that I talk about with any of these writers, I think I've done a good thing in my tribe, we would call mm -hmm. it a mitzvah. So, yeah. you know, I, uh, I, I think it's wonderful. And I, someone, someone once said to me, um, I actually was talking to someone from Writer's Bone, you know, not, not in real time, but sort of through Twitter, I think. And they said, well, you know, how do you feel about all these podcasts? And I said, I feel great. It is not a zero sum game. The no, more podcasts there are, the better. The more readers have an opportunity to engage with writers, the better. So kudos to you. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, which brings us to our usual concluding question. What's next for Lily, Marvina, Beulah, Hildy, Benjamin, and the rest of the gang, which now includes Esme? 
Uh, oh my goodness. Yes. Lily's niece. <laughs> Lily's niece. Uh, so I, I have thought about actually starting several books ago, like what are their lives? Each of these characters lives going to be like, yeah, maybe not year by year, but every couple of years by every couple of years um, as time marches on whether they're involved in solving a crime or not, which of course, you know, they will be. Um, so I've kind of figured that out. What's their life arc um, up through the 19, uh, up through World War II. Um, and I chose that as a cutoff because A, that's, you know, like that's almost 20 years in the future. <laughs> so that's a lot of ground to cover, a lot of time to cover. Um, but it's also when there was a great, sort of diaspora out of Appalachia for um, many, many people. Um, so I wanted to, you know, capture up through that time frame, And I wanted to kind of see, like, know where these characters were heading personally and emotionally, because that helps inform what I have, the, the shenanigans I have them get into book by book. So right now I'm playing with figuring that out um, in a more specific way, but I'm also playing with some standalone ideas. So we'll see where that goes. Um, still, you know, still, you know, drawing on historical true events um, and seeing how I can, you know, use that to create fiction. But, you know, these characters, uh, they're, they're very real to me, so. I worry about them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we certainly want to catch up with them. And, and so I guess the, the last part of my question is, is book five in the works or is it still uh, just sort of a, a sort of you're sort of pulling it together in your head or where are you at? Uh, where Jess? am I at? Um, I'm, I'm in the, you know, you can see a whiteboard behind me. Um, yes. It's blank, blank right now his blank. <laughs> I'm in the, let's fill up the whiteboard phase uh, and, uh, and uh, do some brainstorming about what happens next. You know, they're coming up, uh, it's 1928 in the echoes. So the great depression is just around the corner. Little do they know. So I think it would be interesting to explore. Um, and then already not, you know, I don't think of them as impoverished and on the edge of starving, but in a already not wealthy place, um, what does the Great Depression do to an area like this? So that's what I'm reading about and researching and thinking about. Well, we look forward to seeing number five, hopefully next year. And uh, it's always great to catch up with you, Jess, always great. Oh, thank you. 